Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we begin today with breaking news, a brand new CNN poll on the 2020 presidential race releasing right here on The Lead, 62 days out from Election Day. The poll shows among registered voters, 51 percent back Joe Biden for president and 43 percent support President Donald Trump. CNN political director David Chalian joins me now with more on this breaking news. So, David, this is the first poll since both conventions wrapped up. What's the takeaway here? I mean, the takeaway is that the race has not changed all that dramatically because of those two weeks uh, of conventions. But we see some small changes. Take a look at the candidates favorability, uh, Pam. Take a look. Pre-convention versus post-convention for Donald Trump. He was at 43 percent favorable pre-convention. He's now at 42 percent. Compare that to Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden went up five points in favorability. He was at 47 percent. Then he went to 52 percent. So no movement for Donald Trump, really, and a slight uptick in favorability uh, for Joe Biden. Look at some key slices of the electorate in this Biden-Trump matchup. Biden is crushing the president right now among independents. Look at that. 51% for Biden, 37% for Trump. That 14-point gap, that's a group Donald Trump won four years ago. Look at the gender divide in this race, okay? Among women, Joe Biden has a 20-point advantage, 57% to 37%. Yes, Donald Trump has a slight edge among men, but it's only four points, 48% to 44. So with a huge advantage among women for Joe Biden, and then playing oh, near even among men, that's a troubling sign for President Trump and his re-election effort. We see a similar story when we look at race. People of color, they divide 59% for Biden, 31% for Trump in this poll. That is a huge margin, uh, 28 point advantage there for Joe Biden. Among white voters, it's near even, 49% Biden, 47% uh, Trump in this poll. Again, if, Do- if Joe Biden's running up the score with women and running up the score with people of color, Donald Trump needs to do that with white voters and male voters, but he's not. It's drawing to a, a near tie there. And then look at the age factor here, Pam. Look at that bottom row, 65 and older, senior citizens. Joe Biden is winning them by 17 percentage points in this poll, 57 to 40. This is not a group that we normally see the Democratic presidential candidate running away with like that. Uh, And if you look at the issues we tested, you also see a Biden advantage on racial inequality, on the coronavirus, on criminal justice, all substantial Biden advantage. And on the economy, which has been Donald Trump's strong suit all year long, they're basically tied. So that advantage somewhat erased uh, for Donald Trump in these numbers. Yeah, what really stuck out to me in looking at these numbers is uh, it's how people view crime, law, the law and order message from the president. And he's clearly made this a priority. Uh, David, how is that resonating right now? Yeah, these numbers jumped out to me, too. We asked voters, how worried are you about the risk of crime in your community? Only 13 percent say they're very worried and 24 percent somewhat worried. So uh, more than six in 10 are not 
too worried or, or not worried at all. And if you look at how that divides by race, well, it's people of color who actually 50 percent say they are worried about the risk of crime in their community, uh, whereas compared to only 30 percent of whites. And if you look, Pam, at the divide here uh, between Biden voters and Trump voters mm-hmm. on this issue, it is fascinating. It's that bottom row there. Thirty nine percent of Biden voters actually are worried about the risk of crime in their community. Only 30 percent of Trump voters. And look at all the rest of the scores. Are you worried about the risk of coronavirus in your community, the economy in your community, racism? Overwhelmingly, Biden voters are far more worried. Trump voters, not that worried. So I'm not sure that the uh, messaging that we heard from Donald Trump throughout the convention into his trip to Kenosha is actually having its desired effect. At least we don't see it yet in these numbers. Hmm. Fascinating look there. I want to bring in CNN's Dana Bash and CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein into this conversation. So, Dana, what do these polls uh, tell us 62 days from Election Day? What's your analysis? Well, just as, as David said, the campaign status has really not changed much despite the best efforts of both campaigns during their conventions. And that is the important thing to underscore. As David said, this is the first poll taken after the conventions have both ended. Um, You know, if you look at across the board, as David was saying, whether it's by race, whether it is by age, whether it is by gender, it is Joe Biden's uh, race right now. I mean, he's doing very well. Uh, the one, David, on, on the question of age, David pointed mm-hmm. to the remarkable numbers for senior citizens that Joe Biden has such an advantage. The only area where Donald Trump has a little advantage is with middle-aged voters. Uh, that is striking to me. And also on those economic numbers, that has been the one uh, nut that Joe Biden has had a tough time cracking when it comes to the issues uh, that people care about and who they like the best with the candidates. And now it, it, it is a virtual tie. Now, this is a national number. Uh, that is not how uh, we decide elections in this in this country. Uh, mm-hmm. We go state by state and particularly the swing states that we are all looking at uh, from Wisconsin to uh, to to Pennsylvania, to North Carolina, where the president is today and many more in between. But this is such an important data point, especially as we start the final a sprint from mm-hmm. now until the actual election, even though, remember, voting is going to start really soon. It will yeah. start soon. And, and actually, one of the things that stuck out to me was um, the age you point out. Older voters uh, seem to be skewing for Biden. And what does that mean for, for voting, mail-in bo- voting, mm-hmm. Ron, versus going to the polls for Biden? And well, first of, all, first of all, no Democrat has won seniors since Al Gore in 1980. I don't think any Democrat has won white voters uh, since 1964 with Lyndon Johnson. And, you know, basically having Biden even among white voters is an absolute earthquake. I mean, it reflects not only um, uh, Trump underperforming somewhat where he was in 2016 among uh, non-college white voters, his core group, uh, but also Biden in this poll and several of the others today uh, coming in north of 55 percent among college educated white voters, which is something we have never we have not seen previously in presidential politics. The same voters who drove the 2018 Democratic gains in the House and all of those suburban districts are still south on Trump. Well, look, I mean, mail voting, I think, you know, uh, the early polling, the early suggestions were that as many as half of all Americans would seek to vote by mail. I think that number is going down uh, somewhat. Um, If you look at some polling that was out, other polling that was out today, there was an indication that a lot of Democrats are going to request a ballot by mail, but seek to return it in person. 
Um, and I think that is going to be a big piece of what happens. It, it, it is a big piece already, Pam, of uh, in some of the states that do all mail balloting. A lot of people return it by person in person in Colorado and elsewhere. But I'm guessing that's an increasingly uh, attractive option uh, to Democrats. Uh, just one last point. Uh, you know, this is the first poll after the president's own convention. Uh, David, I don't think any candidate has been trailing in the first poll after their own convention and come back to want, win this Harry Truman in 1948. So, I mean, it is often a high point for a candidate immediately after their own convention. And that, that just is another a data point to keep in mind. So I want to ask you, and Dan has sort of touched on this, David, but um, the other side, Trump would say, look, look at 2016, the polls had me behind and then I pulled off a win. Um, how uh, reliable is the poll in determining how things will actually play out around the election, David? Yeah, well, that's not the goal of the poll, right? It's just to give us a snapshot in time right now and to underscore Dana's point. This is a national poll. Uh, the national polls uh, did show Hillary Clinton with an edge in the election in 2016. And guess what? She won the national popular vote uh, by a few million votes. So uh, it, it's not that the polls uh, didn't capture that. But to Dana's point about this is a battle for 270 electoral votes and putting that puzzle together piece by piece uh, is what uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both going to be focused on relentlessly uh, for the duration of this campaign. So I think you take this to give you a snapshot. It tells us after these two weeks of convention, this race did not get altered that much. With mm. Donald Trump's desire to move the conversation, it didn't all of a sudden dramatically find a new resonance in America yet that we're seeing. Might it find some resonance in Pennsylvania among his base? Maybe. And might mm -hmm. that be enough to win the state? Sure. So I don't think we should look at this and say a fait accompli. We know where the, this election is going. I do think this close to the election after the conventions, it's advantaged Joe Biden in this election right now. And, and you touch on, you know, the message resonating so much of the RNC was about this law and order mm -hmm. message. Yeah. President Trump visited Kenosha yesterday to hammer home the law and order message. Now Biden is set to visit tomorrow. But given these polls show most people aren't as worried about right. crime in their community, Dana, do you think it's a mistake to play into the president's messaging here for Biden? He, I don't think he has a choice. And certainly that's obviously what the Biden campaign feels, that they don't have a choice, that if they leave this unanswered, it will uh, creep into uh, into Biden's voters. And um, so what Biden is trying to do, and if you look at what he did today, I think it's it's a clear example of trying yeah. to answer what the president is doing, or, or maybe the best way to say it is not let it go unanswered, but then also trying to push his own agenda and his own message about the coronavirus still being the top issue for voters, about leadership and character and everything that goes along with it, and relating it to real people like parents who can't go to school, uh, can't send their kids to school and have to decide uh, whether or not they're going to quit their job to stay home with them and so many other issues that fall from that. The, the numbers that, that David showed about um, that question, worries in your community, Trump versus Biden supporters, the fact that uh, Biden voters say 39 percent uh, are worried about the risk of crime, whereas Trump voters 30 percent, meaning that Biden voters are wor more worried about the crime than mm -hmm. Trump voters. I, I hear I hear what David is saying, that it shows maybe it's not working, but it also perhaps shows why Trump is trying to pull some of those voters over with those with those um, fears, because they know that those are fears among Biden voters. Very unclear whether or not it'll work. Right. And, and Biden Just, today, he turned. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, what Biden did today, Pam, I think was, is more reflective of where he's going to go mm -hmm. uh, by focusing on the impact of the coronavirus on society and on school opening and so forth. I mean, these numbers, the 37 percent only saying they are very worried about crime in their community. 
shows how hard it is to shift the public's focus from something that they are experiencing mostly on TV, which is watching protests or watching stories about violent crime, uh, from something that they are experiencing in their actual life every day, which is the disruption of the coronavirus. I mean, you know, I said the other day that if you're sitting on your couch watching uh, violence uh, in some city on TV, you may not like what you see, but you like it even less that you see your kids sitting in between you and the television because they're not in school. And that, I think, is the challenge the president ultimately faces. He's still looking at about 60 percent saying they disapprove of him on coronavirus. Hard to change the subject when that's going on. All right. Great conversation, Dana, David, Ron. Thank you all. Thanks, sure. Pam. Well, breaking news, the government is telling states to get ready for a vaccine. Get this as early as next month. We're going to discuss that next. Plus, Virtual learning is already challenging. Now, one of the nation's largest school districts is the target of cyber attacks for the third day in a row. We'll be back. Turning to our health lead now, warning signs for Labor Day. Dr. Anthony Fauci among the nation's top health experts urging Americans to wear a mask, social distance, and avoid crowds. That's something we've been hearing for months. But this after the U.S. saw new coronavirus cases surge on other holiday weekends like Memorial Day and July 4th. And now the threat much greater as CNN's Diane Gallagher reports with a return to school and the flu season upon us. Ever heard of a twindemic? What I would really like to see is kind of a full court press. Dr. Anthony Fauci warning today the U.S. needs to act quickly before flu season begins to get the coronavirus pandemic under control in order to avoid a double dose of trouble. So that when you get these cases in the fall, they won't surge up. They'll be controllable. The U.S. jumped back to more than 1,000 new recorded deaths on Tuesday. And with 17 states reporting an uptick in new cases, the national surge has moved from the south to the Midwest as states in the middle of America, like Iowa, where masks are not mandated, are seeing massive spikes in positivity rates. We have a 30% positivity rate uh, just within a 24-hour period. And so we have some major concerns that we must address. And Even as her state suffers through a surge, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst is floating a debunked conspiracy theory that COVID death totals are inflated. And she appeared to suggest, without proof, that doctors are falsifying death records for financial gain. I have heard it from healthcare providers that they do get reimbursed higher amounts if it's a COVID-related illness or death. Ernst later clarified she didn't know for a fact healthcare providers were doing this. It's something she claims to have heard on the news but gave no specifics. Around 185,000 people in the U.S. have died from COVID-19. We're in the middle of an of a epidemic with homelessness. In an extraordinary move, the Trump administration invoking the CDC's powers to temporarily halt most evictions for millions of Americans struggling to pay their rent due to hardship brought on by COVID-19. It's a lot of people and kids from all over. Outbreaks at colleges and universities continue to pop up across the country, with more than 25,000 cases reported on campuses in 37 states. Dr. Fauci today telling students not to go home. It's the worst thing you could do. Keep them at the university in a place that's sequestered enough from the other students, but don't have them go home because they could be spreading it in their home state. 
And Pamela, just breaking right now, the CDC confirming to CNN uh, that it has be told different public health officials, both states and cities, to begin preparing to distribute a coronavirus vaccine as early as late October. Now, the New York Times first reported this information. Uh, essentially, it looks like there were two separate scenarios the CDC has talked to these state and city public health officials about, uh, representing two different vaccines, and suggesting that they would begin distributing them to public health officials, uh, like first responders, hospital workers, uh, and those who are, of course, uh, most, most affected by COVID because of other comorbidities, Pamela. Mm, the timing of that is very interesting, though. All right. Thank you so much, Diane Gallagher. We appreciate it. And here to discuss this, Dr. Ashish Jha, director of Harvard's Global Health Institute. Great to see you, Dr. Jha. I want to get your reaction to what we just heard from Diane about the CDC notifying all 50 states about how to prepare for a possible vaccine as soon as late October, early November. What do we make of this? Is this a normal step in the process? Yeah, so thanks for having me on. Uh, first of all, it's always good to prepare. I think the notion of preparation isn't a problem. That timeline is really aggressive. It's hard to imagine we're going to have the data necessary. But unfortunately, when you then tie it in with the words of the FDA commissioner, who has said that he may uh, ignore the advice of his own advisory committee uh, and issue an EUA, an emergency use authorization, uh, even without phase three trials uh, being done, uh, it does, I think, worry a lot of us that there is a rush here. Uh, we've really got to let the science play out before we make a decision on the vaccine. And we also heard uh, Dr. Fauci's warning for Labor Day. This comes as this new report shows there's been a 17 percent increase in COVID-19 cases in children around the country over the past two weeks. Is there a greater risk for a surge in new cases now that many children return to the classroom? And of course, flu season is about to start. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, as you mentioned earlier, we have seen this after major holidays. We saw a big surge after Memorial Day. Uh, we saw a spike after July 4th. Uh, it really depends on how we handle things and how we do things. Uh, I'm not suggesting everybody needs to be home on Labor Day. People can get out, go enjoy the great outdoors. You can have a small backyard barbecue. It's the large gatherings that really get us into trouble. If we see a big spike, it's going to make the fall and winter much harder, especially as kids come back to school. Yeah, that's what I'm looking ahead to, the fall and the winter and what that could look like. And Dr. Fauci also talked about the worst thing you could do is send college students home after they've been infected. We heard him say that. Instead, he says they should stay on campus and isolate there. What do you think? Do you think campuses should shut down if students become infected? Yeah, so I've been talking to a lot of colleges and universities around the country, and, and my advice has been completely consistent with what Dr. Fauci just said. What I've said to people is if you have a large outbreak, you have to plan for keeping students there and helping them get better there. Uh, you can't send everybody home uh, for the exact reasons of you're going to essentially spread the virus. You're going to have students go home, infect their elderly parents or grandparents, and that will be a disaster. So if colleges can't do that, they have no business bringing students back this fall. All right, I want to turn our attention to Iowa right now, because not only does Iowa have the largest case rate in the nation right now, but its Senator Jenny, uh, Joni Ernst suggested healthcare providers could be inflating the death toll, essentially uh, committing fraud because she said that they get reimbursed at a higher rate if COVID is tied to it. She later clarified uh, saying she doesn't know for a fact, but it's something she heard on the news. That is that is misinformation. Have you seen any evidence that COVID deaths are fake or exaggerated and that doctors are getting reimbursed for it? 
Yeah, I, I, you know, this is really troubling to me um, because the idea that three million nurses, one million doctors, four million of our most, uh, I think, uh, people with incredible integrity, that they have somehow all overnight become morally corrupt and are making up numbers to get a little extra cash. First of all, nurses and doctors wouldn't see it in their pockets. It would go to the hospitals. Second, it's not happening. Like, this is not what's going on. We have people dying of COVID. And instead of trying to blame doctors and nurses who are doing heroic work, yeah. I think we've got to focus on the virus and the disease. Okay, so let's just break this down a little bit because there's still all this discussion about is the number actually accurate on COVID deaths? And we see it right here on the screen, um, more than 184,000. When a doctor fills out a birth, uh, a birth certificate, uh, sorry, I just had a baby not long ago, so in my mind, a death certificate, um, tell me about that. What is that process in determining this yeah. is the cause of death if the person has a secondary or a comorbidity? Yeah, this has been very frustrating for all the misinformation about, oh, there are all these people with comorbidities. Look, I filled out a lot of death certificates in my life, and I've pronounced people who've died in the hospital. I fill out the forms. And what I do is, of course, I lay, lay out the number one reason, the main reason they died it might be COVID, it might be pneumonia from COVID. And then I list all the potential, not a potential, all the other conditions that they've had. So if they had high blood pressure at some point, if they had diabetes, if they had anything else, high cholesterol, we list them. That doesn't mean that people died of those things. It's still a COVID death. And to say that those deaths don't matter because somebody had high blood pressure or had high cholesterol, I just find that uh, shocking, and I find that to be totally uh, an unacceptable way to look at this. Before we let you go, I want to get your reaction to this, because the administration announced that it's sending out $5 rapid tests to states starting mid-September. You've been critical of COVID testing in the U.S. so far. How significant of a development is that? Yeah, I, look, we got to give the administration praise uh, when they're doing the right stuff, and they clearly are here. I, I'm happy to see it. Uh, my only bit of skepticism, we've heard a lot of promises out of the administration. So I want to see these tests get out and I want to hear from states that they have it and then they're able to deploy it. Uh, but I think this is good news and I think we should applaud the administration uh, as these tests roll out. All right, Dr. Ashish Jha, thank you. And by the way, congratulations on starting your tenure as the new dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. We're very happy for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi caught on camera violating local coronavirus restrictions while getting her hair done. Now the Speaker of the House says she was set up. Breaking news in our politics lead, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi now says she was set up after her trip to a San Francisco hair salon drew backlash from Republicans for breaking the city's coronavirus rules. Now, the business's owner shared this video right here of Pelosi inside the salon, as you see, not wearing a mask as she walks from one room to another. Now, right now, the city's guidelines require services like haircuts to happen outdoors. But Pelosi says a salon staff member told her one appointment at a time was allowed inside the building. CNN's Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill. Manu, that's a strong allegation from Speaker Pelosi. Does she have any proof? Well, she's pointing to how this all played out. Typically, when she gets her hair done in San Francisco, someone comes to her house, but apparently her regular stylist was not available. That person referred it to someone else at this salon, and the person that she or her staff interacted with at the salon conveyed to them that she could come in to the salon. It would be no problem. But, of course, as you mentioned, this is a complete violation of what... Uh, 
San Francisco rules allow, which is that such hair appointments need to happen outdoors, not indoors. And after this came out, the, the footage was first provided to Fox News. The owner criticized Nancy Pelosi in an interview with Fox News. We've reached out to the owner, too. Uh, and then after she, this, she's gotten some criticism by the president, by Republicans, she responded very strongly today by saying that all of this appears to have been a setup. I take responsibility for trusting uh, the word of a neighborhood salon that I've been to over the years many times, and that um, when they said, well, we're able to accommodate people one person at a time, and that we can set up that time, I trusted that. As it turns out, it was a setup. So I take responsibility for falling for a setup. Now, in that footage that shows her not wearing a mask, her office says that she was wearing a mask through the course of the appointment. The only time that she didn't was that exact moment when she pulled it down after getting her hair washed for a very brief moment that they contended. So as part of their arguments that this was an effort to make her look bad, leak this footage, invite her in in violation of the rules. She's calling for an apology from the salon as well. But uh, clearly, regardless of how this played out, it was a violation of what the rules allow in San Francisco, which is if she's going to get her hair cut there, it has to be outdoors. Right. Outdoors. It's interesting her her words there saying, I take responsible for, responsibility for falling for a setup, but the rules are the rules in the city. And, and that is that. All right, Manu, Raju, thanks so much. Thank you. Turning to our 2020 lead and a new campaign strategy, sources tell CNN the White House has decided the spread of coronavirus is inevitable and is now moving away from heavy-handed actions to stop the virus, focusing instead on reopening the economy with just two months until the presidential election. Well, president Trump is now speaking less about the virus in public, as you may have seen, and is making the law and order the focus of his re-election effort, as CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports. Two months out from Election Day, President Trump is on the trail in the key battleground state of North Carolina, pivoting away from the pandemic and turning to the economy and law and order. American warriors did not defeat fascism and oppression overseas only to watch our freedoms be trampled by violent mobs here at home. We stopped those violent mobs very easily. These people only know one thing, and that's strength. With U.S. coronavirus cases topping 6 million, sources telling CNN that Trump and top White House officials have all but given up on suppressing the virus, focusing instead on doing just enough to keep hospitals from being overwhelmed while waiting for a vaccine. One senior administration official telling CNN, you can't stop it. The idea that you're going to be able to get the economy back on track without getting COVID under control is completely counterintuitive. Democratic challenger Joe Biden also preparing to counter Trump's visit yesterday to Kenosha, Wisconsin, announcing he will hold a community meeting there tomorrow. We've spoken to uh, all the leaders up there, and there's been uh, overwhelming requests that I do come, uh, because uh, what we want to do is we got to heal. we got to put things together, bring people together. Meanwhile, Trump is continuing to make baseless claims about Biden's health. He's done some kind of an enhancement, in my opinion. And I say we should both. I should take a drug test, so should he. But these days, it's the president who is facing questions about his health amid new reporting that Vice President Mike Pence was put on standby when Trump made an unscheduled trip to Walter Reed Medical Center last year. 
Biden declining to weigh in. And I'm not going to speculate. Uh, I'll let uh, the experts do that. The only time that uh, I have been on notice is when uh, um, the president's out of the country and I'm in the country. And Pam, the president today in North Carolina continuing to stoke unfounded fears about the integrity of the 2020 election, now suggesting that his voters should actually, if they vote by mail, also go and try and vote in person. Listen. So let him send it in and let him go vote. And if the assistance is good as they say it is, then obviously they won't be able to vote. If it isn't calculated, they'll be able to vote. So that's the way it is. And that's what they should do. And what the president is suggesting his voters should do here is essentially commit voter fraud. If you vote via absentee or if you vote by mail, you cannot go and then try and vote in person as well. And if you would be allowed to do so, you would be committing voter fraud. So again, not clear what the president is trying to get at here. But Pam, it does seem like the latest attempt by the president to try and you know stoke fear and concern about the 2020 election without any evidence whatsoever. That is stunning that he's encouraging voter fraud from a president who is claimed repeatedly that he's so concerned about uh, voter fraud in the election. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Well, coming up, fear factor. President Trump claims violent crime is up in cities run by Democrats. Is that the whole truth? We'll take a look. And in our national lead, a 166% spike in gun violence across New York City just in the last month. And that increase appears to be happening across this country when you look at murders and gun violence. According to the New York Times and 25 large cities across America, there has been a 16 percent rise in murder compared to just uh, to last year. And that's not just in democratically run cities, but uh, crime overall is actually down. Joining me now is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, whose new book, The Violence Inside Us, A Brief History of an Ongoing American Tragedy, is out now. Great to see you, Senator Murphy. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. So let's talk about these numbers. As I mentioned, the overall crime is down, but murder is up. And uh, we're seeing a spike in, in gun violence in some places like New York City. That violence is separate from the racial justice movement we've seen going on in the country. So what do you think is going on right now? Well, in my book, you know, I talk about the long term trajectory of violence um, in the world world and in the United States. And um, overall, we have seen um, a pretty radical reduction in the amount of violence in this country and over the very long term, a really radical reduction in violence all across the world. Um, but it goes up and it goes down. And in the United States, um, there's lots of data to suggest, uh, and I tell these stories in the book, that uh, violence tends to track poverty and easy access to guns. And what we've seen in low-income neighborhoods this summer is economic desperation as 30 to 40 percent of low-income workers have lost their jobs. And we've also seen gun sales spike. Um, you saw record numbers of guns being sold in the spring of this year. Uh, and I think it stands to reason that those two things put together have led to a spike in gun murders. I think the president's refusal to try to heal the nation and mount an effective COVID response is contributory. Um, but the long-term data would suggest that the factors we've seen uh, this spring, lots of guns and lots of people out of work, uh, were going to lead to increases in violence. 
All right, let's talk about the president and uh, what we've seen from him recently in the context of what we've seen this summer. The, the two people killed in Wisconsin at that protest after the shooting of Jacob Blake, a 17-year-old suspect is now facing multiple homicide uh, charges. And then there was another person killed in Portland. Unrest has been continuing for nearly 100 days there. President Trump likes to point to these and say, we have a law and order problem in this country. He says, he often says that this is just a democratic run cities. Is there a law and order problem or is there something else going on in your view? Well, you know, the president has been celebrating violence since his campaign in 2016, when he cheered on his supporters who were beating up protesters at rallies to his celebration of uh, white supremacists marching in Charlottesville to today, his refusal to um, condemn a supporter of his who took an assault rifle into a protest and killed two people. Um, his responsibility is to condemn violence of all kinds. And I was proud of Joe Biden, who stood up the other day and said, listen, whether it's coming from supporters of mine or supporters of the president, there's no room for violence in this nation. Uh, and so what I'd like to see is the you know president try to heal. Um, uh, right now, I think he has made the decision that his his reelection is dependent on there being more unrest and more chaos. And so I think you're going to see him throwing fuel on the fire uh, rather than actually try to do things that would reduce uh, the amount of violence we're seeing. I had a little technical issue there. It's interesting. We had this new CNN poll come out and it showed that more Biden supporters are actually concerned about uh, crime in their communities versus uh, Trump voters. We see it right here, those numbers, 39% compared to 30%. Uh, the Trump campaign is cutting an ad that Biden is weak on law. What do you think? Are Democrats losing on this issue? Well, there's really you know, no, no sign of that. We're seeing continued polls showing Joe Biden you know, leading by near double digits. And as he reminded the nation a few nights ago, uh, you know, during the Obama and Biden years, um, violent crime in this country went down by 15 percent. And uh, we've seen that big spike in murders in American cities uh, this year under Trump's watch. Um, listen, I, we have to get to the root causes of the violence. Um, you know, my book certainly talks about the things you can do to make sure that there are less illegal weapons out there. But unless you really deal with the racist past and present of this country, the way in which white majorities have used violence to suppress communities of color, the way that poverty leads to violence, um, you're not going to make a difference here. And so if you want a law and order president, then elect somebody who's going to be all about racial healing, elect somebody who's going to lift people out of poverty. That's Joe Biden. Um, you want a law and order president, deal with the root causes of violence. And that's what our candidate, uh, the Democratic candidate, is talking about. I want to ask you this before you go. It's, it's hard even now to talk about, to think about um, without getting emotional. It's been nearly eight years since one of the the, the, one of the most disturbing mass shootings in U.S. history, Sandy Hook. Um, that was in your home state. Sorry, I'm, I'm a mom, and it's just even just talking about it is tough. As we know, 20 children and six adults were killed. You talk about the need to reduce the number of guns in the streets. But if Congress couldn't do anything after Sandy Hook or Parkland or Pulse nightclub, will they ever, will there ever be change in that regard? It, you know, this book is not a book uh, about Sandy Hook. It, it shows up in, in these pages, and the book is in part my story, my sort of political coming of age since Sandy Hook. I've learned a lot about gun violence over the last seven years, and I try to share that in this book so that others can become true activists in this cause. And the reason is um, that 
Um, no, it didn't all change after 2012. Why? Because uh, you need a political movement uh, to rival that of the gun lobby. For 40 years, the NRA built up a political powerhouse that did end up defeating our efforts to institute mandatory comprehensive background checks in 2013. Um, but now our movement is bigger and stronger than the gun lobby. Um, we passed a universal background checks bill in the House. We just have to get the numbers in the Senate. And my hope is that this book, The Violence Inside Us, can act as a primer for people who want to become more educated on why violence happens in the United States and what to do about it. It's not all about changing gun laws, um, but that gets you the most immediate impact. And I think we are on the precipice of being big enough and strong enough, enough as a movement in order to get something passed in 2021. All right, Senator Chris Murphy, thank you so much. The Violence Inside Us, A Brief History of an Ongoing American Tragedy, on sale now. Thanks. Well, coming up, voters divide in the suburbs of a battleground state that's key to President Trump's re-election chances. Florida's largest school system, Miami-Dade County, has launched a criminal investigation into a cyber attack that has interrupted its first week of virtual classes. CNN's Rosa Flores is in Miami, and you have a breaking news on who might be responsible. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right, Pamela. This is breaking news from the Miami-Dade County Public Schools police chief, who tells us that preliminary information suggests that the sources of these attacks are both foreign and domestic. Now, here is what we know. So these attacks on the Miami-Dade County Public Schools started on day one of virtual schooling. Today alone, according to the chief, they've been attacked at least 13 times by what they call is a distributed denial of service attack. All that is, is imagine a million people knocking at your door all at the same time trying to get in. So what these attacks do is they create a bottleneck and doesn't allow, in this case, students and teachers to log on. Just to give you a sense of the size of the school district, this is the fourth largest school district in the country with more than 500,000 students. Now, according to the chief, they are working with the FBI and also with the Secret Service and that they are looking at multiple IP addresses. And this is where they say that the preliminary information suggests that some of these are foreign, some of these are domestic. According to the superintendent of schools, he described these attacks as being sophisticated and complex. Take a listen. In the shadow of this problem, there was a, a malicious attempt, malicious, well-orchestrated complex attempt at derailing, destroying the connection, which is essential for our students and teachers. Now, the chief of police says that these attacks have not been able to infiltrate the school system. And Pamela, I should add that Comcast issued a statement saying that it is working both with the district and also with law enforcement. Hmm. All right. Interesting. It's both local and international sources. Thanks so much, Rosa. Well, as President Trump embraces a message of law and order claiming Democrats will destroy American suburbs, CNN went to battleground Ohio to gauge whether that message is resonating in a state he won back in 2016 and a state that no president has lost in modern history. As CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, for some, the president's suburban safety pitch has been a turnoff. President Trump is seizing on the suburbs as a weapon in his fight with Joe Biden. You will totally destroy the beautiful suburbs. Suburbia will be no longer. But here in Ohio, these sprawling communities have long been changing. Just ask Angie Jenkins. 
I have no idea what he's talking about because the suburbs are not what they were in the 60s. Jenkins is the new city council president of Reynoldsburg, just outside Columbus. She and two other black women were elected last year, in part, she believes, as a reaction to Trump. I do feel like he's trying to put fear in people, but people know what we've had for the last four years and what he has been as a president. Nine weeks before Election Day, the suburbs are again a critical part of Battleground, Ohio, a state Trump won in 2016 by eight percentage points. This time, front yards showing new signs of division, from All Lives Matter to Black Lives Matter, from Trump to Biden, often on the same block. Ed Paxton owns a cigar shop in the nearby town of Delaware. Some people love him, some people hate him. His view of Trump has improved over the last four years and believes the president's law and order message will resonate with some voters in both camps. It is Trump's America, but I think at a local level, our law enforcement has been handcuffed. John Murphy, an iron worker who dropped by to pick up a cigar, disagrees. He says the summer unrest is justified. When people are dying for no reason other than the color of their skin, um, they have a right to be angry. You think President Trump's trying to scare people? Absolutely. I, I think that's his main tactic. Stephanie Pizer believes the scare tactics won't work, particularly on women awakened to politics because of Trump. It's pretty obvious what, you know, what the future's going to look like under, under Trump, which scares a lot of women. After Trump won in 2016, she helped form a group in the Republican-leaning suburbs called Positively Blue, recruiting women to run for local office and become more politically aware. We're not going to convert any Trump supporters. Um, but finding those people that are on the fence, um, the independents, and um, Republicans that are just fed up with the way that our country's been run. Not long ago, many Democrats believed the state was out of reach. But the coronavirus crisis and economic fallout changed that. Plus, Biden is a known quantity after being a partner on the Obama ticket that twice carried Ohio. That's why the Trump campaign is trying to rebrand Biden. Among some Republicans, at least, it may be working. The Democratic Party is not what it used to be, and it's extremely liberal, and um, I think it's scary. Now, that is the sentiment we heard from a lot of Republicans and Trump supporters. They believe that Joe Biden is simply one of the uh, many liberal Democrats in their view. So that will be a challenge for Joe Biden to uh, you know, keep introducing himself with his own moderate record. But there is no question the Trump campaign paying specific attention to Ohio. They have already reserved $5.6 million in ads for this month alone, Pamela. This is why no Republican has ever won the White House without Ohio. He needs these 18 electoral votes. All right, Jeff Zelmy, thank you so much. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.